Morning, everyone. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 11, please. Great to see all of you. Father, we are so thankful that you are a saving God who has delivered us from the wrath to come. We recognize your son as the sacrifice that took the punishment we deserve, and what a privilege it is to see that portrayed through every baptism, being reminded physically of what is taking place spiritually, that we have died with Christ, been buried with him, and raised with him uh, to newness of life, and then we can look forward even to resurrection further with glorified bodies. And as we're entertaining which of our children, at least for those parents who are in the same position as me, should be baptized in a few weeks, Lord, I pray that these uh, sermons would minister to each of us and inform us, myself included, and also would speak to the children and pray that you would give them an extra attentiveness this morning and next week as they consider whether they should be baptized, that they would recognize salvation as the requirement, that there is not an amount of maturity, but that they, they must be born again. And so we pray for those who are Christians, Lord, that they would be convicted to be baptized. And we pray that there sh- should there be any children who are not Christians, we ask that you'd grant them repentance and faith in Christ, but that they would not be uh, have any peace associated with being baptized until that's taken place. We also pray, Lord, for any unbelievers in our church, because I believe these evidences, while we're applying them to children, can serve a very wonderful purpose in each of our lives as we consider whether we are saved or not. And for those who are saved, I pray these evidences would give us greater confidence in our salvation, Lord. So really for each of us, Lord, I think that these, are, these sermons apply, help us to remove any other distractions from our lives and just hear you speak to us through these verses. And should anything not be from you or conflict with your word, I pray that people's hearts, it would be just disregarded. But whatever is true and is from you, Lord, uh, that I share, that it, they would hear it as the word of God and that it would bear witness to them. And so just guide my speech, Lord, and use me as your vessel for your people. This is too heavy of a, of a, of a sermon or discussion anytime standing behind this pulpit that I wouldn't uh, desire to have you just simply speak through me as your instrument. And so we pray for that to be the case, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. So the title this morning's sermon is When Children Should Be Baptized, Part 2. So a few months back, we decided we'd have some baptisms in the near future that we hadn't had, and this was the first time in uh, my time as a father that I was entertaining some of my children being baptized. And so many of our uh, Bible studies as a family were about um, baptism and whether our children should be baptized. And it occurred to me that this might be the same question that many of you are having as well. And so just decided to have these sermons leading up to Easter. Because we believe children must be baptized, or well, children must be baptized if they're Christians, but because we believe children must be believers or Christians before being baptized, we're discussing evidences of their salvation so that we as parents can look and have confidence in their salvation or have confidence that they are not yet saved. And it's good too, while of course it is sad to believe that your child is not a believer, that is a very important thing to recognize as a parent so we can take appropriate steps, which I will talk about at the end of the sermon, if you find that to be the case. Rare is the parent, especially with young children who can be very confident in each child's salvation. It would actually be a somewhat foolish parent that would look at at all their children, even the the youngest, and believe that they are saved, perhaps just because they're being brought to church. Also, I think these sermons can serve a good purpose for each of us in a value, um, you know, think of that moment in the, in the Bible when the, uh, Paul's apostleship was being criticized, and he wrote back to them, and he said, you're busy criticizing or examining my apostleship, and you should be examining your, he didn't even say examining yourselves, examine your salvation to see that you're in the faith. So it's a good thing for all of us. Uh, how unfortunate would it be if, if I was your pastor and there were some number of you who believed you were saved only to be, you know, dead but a few seconds and learn that you'd believed a lie throughout your life. And so it's a good thing probably every few years for all, all of us and even from behind this pulpit for messages to discuss this topic so we can consider that we're in the faith and uh, how wonderful would it be if some people who thought they were in the faith learned that they were not, could repent, and come to faith as a result of that. So um, please be tuning in. I think, there, I think all of us need to be considering these evidences. Should they be present in your life, then how wonderful is that that you can be more confident? Because God doesn't, as John wrote, he said, I write these things that you would be confident that you are his, that you are saved. And so that is a confidence that God wants for his children. Now we're going to go ahead and review the first three evidences from last week pretty quickly. The first evidence 
of salvation to look for in your children or you could say in yourself would be godly sorrow repentance is required for salvation you turn from your sin to that's what repentance is a turning from your sin to Christ and to put your faith in Christ second Corinthians seven ten says godly sorrow produces repentance so turning from your sin to Christ that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly sorrow produces death so worldly sorrow is not sorrow over the sin or against sinning against God it is simply a sorrow over the consequences or getting caught or the punishment that's to follow godly sorrow on the other hand is sorrow over the sin a desire for victory over it a turning from that sin or repenting looking to Christ in faith which is why it produces salvation the next part of lesson one which flows from godly sorrow is spiritual fruit so look for spiritual fruit in your children's lives when repentance has taken place sincerely or genuinely it will always be accompanied by fruit there has never been one instance in all of human history of sincere repentance that was not accompanied by fruit because whenever you put off you must also put on whatever is stopped there must be something accompanied that's started there's a vacuum that's created when we stop something in our lives and it must be filled with works or or good fruit if if repentance has taken place and this is why we read Matthew 3 John the Baptist said bear fruit worthy of repentance because uh, if if we have put off or sincerely repented then there will be some accompanying behavior that replaces that sin that we have stopped the next evidence spiritual hunger and thirst I'm going to be talking a lot in this sermon about uh, a balance that's required that in fact I mean while I'm pre- preaching if you desire pray that God would help me strike this balance it's not an easy one because with these with these evidences it's not a simple black and white issue and this is a good example we talk about a spiritual hunger and thirst is there any Christian who's ever lived who has always wanted to pray always wanted to read the Bible always wanted to go to church and always wanted to worship no absolutely not and so just because there are days or times that we don't want to do those things or that we aren't recognizing or appreciating a spiritual hunger and thirst is not to say that we're not Christians similarly with our children should there be days that they don't want to pray go to church join family worship doesn't necessarily mean that they're not Christians but I will say this every person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit regenerated which is to say brought to life spiritually must at times desire to pray worship go to church read the Bible should you never have those desires then you should have zero confidence in your salvation it is not possible for a regenerate person to not at least occasionally want to worship the Savior who has saved them and so with our children should they never want to do those things should they occasionally not want to do those things not greatly or terribly concerning but should they never want to do those things we should not have confidence in their salvation now the new lesson for this morning evidences of salvation to look for in your children part four spiritual understanding spiritual understanding scripture is clear that if we are believers then God has opened the eyes and ears of our hearts to spiritual truths I want to show you some verses that make this point and then we'll talk about the application for our children so you probably have your Bibles open to Matthew 11 you don't have to read these verses but in in 20 through 24 Jesus is talking about the unrepentant cities of Corazon and Bethsaida who had the gospel or had Christ preached to them or here's another way to say it spiritual truths were shared with these cities they rejected these truths and then look what Jesus says in verse 25 at that time Jesus declared I thank you father Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise this means wise and understanding in their own eyes or in an earthly or worldly sense not a spiritual sense from the proud or the wise and understanding and you have revealed these things to little children so these cities had spiritual truths revealed to them but those truths were concealed or hidden they didn't understand them but who does understand spiritual truths and it's not a trick question it's in the verse based on the verse who does understand or who who can have who can have spiritual truths shared with them and revealed it says little children right now that that can literally mean little children or physically be little children there can be children 
uh, young children who have a, a tremendous spiritual understanding that, that God has given them at a young age. But it's primarily speaking of baby Christians or new believers, or speaking of little children spiritually. And so the point is, even baby Christians or new believers understand spiritual truths. Look two chapters to the right to Matthew 13. The context for these verses is Jesus preached the parable of the sower. And then in verse 10, the disciples asked Jesus why he preached in parables, which is really to say concealed truths. That's what parables are. They're physical stories that contain or reveal, for those whose eyes and ears have been opened spiritually, spiritual truths or heavenly matters. And the disciples said, why don't you just speak plainly? Why do you speak in ways that the truths would be concealed? And then look what Jesus says in verse 11 in answer to them. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, to you being believers, but to them, to them being unbelievers, it has not been given. So there are these two groups, one group, believers, who know the secrets of the kingdom of God, and then unbelievers whom spiritual insight has not been given to them. They don't understand these things. Now, I don't know whether it seems this way or not, but we're going through these evidences fairly quickly because I wanted to have them done prior to baptisms on Easter. But when I've taught on this or preached on this before, there were uh, at least one sermon or sometimes two sermons committed to each of these evidences. And so we're, you're getting more of an elevated view of them. I guess my, my point I'm trying to make is this. We're definitely not looking at all of the verses that we could look at for each of these evidences. And if you wanted a pretty extensive understanding of this particular evidence, you won't find a better one than in 1 Corinthians 2. So go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 2. This is the clearest place in Scripture discussing this particular evidence that believers understand spiritual truths and unbelievers do not. The context for these verses in chapter 2 is Paul is talking about preaching Christ, and then look at chapter, or look at verse 7. Paul says, but we impart or share or preach a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Somewhat similar to Jesus's parables that contain a secret or a hidden wisdom in them for only some to hear or understand. Now, who is, let me say it like this, who is this secret and hidden wisdom secret and hidden from? Who is the secret and hidden wisdom secret and hidden from? Unbelievers, the lost. Look at verse 8. Paul says, none of the rulers of this age understood this or understood these truths that we're sharing, basically the gospel or that Jesus is the Christ. He said, none of the rulers understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Makes perfect sense, right? If they had understood Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah, the Christ, then they would not have crucified him. Now Paul changes direction, was speaking about unbelievers, and now speaks about believers in verse 9. He says, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. But these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Unbelievers don't understand these spiritual truths, but in these verses, Paul uses the word us. He's including himself. He's talking about believers, and he says that these truths have, do bear witness to us. Verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. And he's just building to this point, or let me pause this, let me get your attention briefly. Creation reveals to every person who has ever lived that there is a, but creation does not reveal that there is a savior. So creation is only revelation of God, but it is not a salvific revelation. It is not a saving knowledge. To know God in a saving way, requires more than recognizing that there is a God through creation. And to know him 
is only possible through the Holy Spirit of God revealing God to us. That's what he's saying here. He says, nobody knows God except the Holy Spirit of God, and then those that the Holy Spirit reveals God to. That's the point he's going to say. You're not going to come to know God, not in a saving way, through the, rev- through the revelation we have in, in creation. So look at verse 11 with that in mind again. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends or understands the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but we have received the spirit who is from God. Why is that? So we might understand the things freely given us by God. And again, you notice the words we. So God's Holy Spirit is revealing God and deep spiritual truths to believers. Verse 13, we, and Paul says, we're imparting, we're sharing, preaching these truths in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, there are different ways in Scripture to refer to believers. <clears throat> There's believers, Christian and Antioch, believers or Christians started being called Christians for the first time. I can't remember the chapter in Acts. Saints, elect, chosen, all these different names. Even I think Peter even refers to believers, and he says that they are those who obey the Word of God like when he talks about an unbelieving husband. He doesn't say an unbelieving husband. He says a husband who does not obey the word, which is, that's his way of referring to an unbeliever. Well, right here, when Paul refers to believers, he doesn't say believers or Christians or saints, even though that's what he's talking about. He says those who are spiritual, because that's what Christians or believers are. They are people who are spiritual in the sense that spiritual truths have been revealed to us. Paul's way in this context to refer to unbelievers is not to call them unbelievers or, or damned or anything like that. Instead, he says natural person, people who don't understand spiritual things. Look in verse 14, the following verse. The natural person or unbeliever does not accept or understand the, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him or foolishness. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And I think this is important in our parenting you could, you could get multiple PhDs, you could go to the, the sharpest institutions in history, you could deal with some of the most brilliant minds, you could work your entire life and not learn spiritual truths, because Paul's point here is that they do not come through human effort. You can never work hard enough to learn the gospel without someone preaching it to you or without it being spiritually revealed to you. Nobody can try hard enough to learn all the truths of the universe or the truths about God in their own effort. To know God or to know the gospel is, is something that's only available through, through it being spiritually discerned. That's what he says there. And so in our parenting, it's not so much an issue of us getting our children to try hard enough or, our, or us trying hard enough in our parenting. It's an issue of God opening their eyes and ears spiritually to these truths, which is why as parents it requires two things from us. It requires us sharing those truths. The kids, our children can't learn the truths if we, if, they don't, if we don't share them with them. That's the responsibility God has given us. And then the second responsibility on our part is to pray that God opens their hearts and plants those truths deep in there. And I would encourage you to pray that in front of your children so that they know how much you desire that for them. Now, quite a few other verses I could give you, but I believe you get the point about this, that believers understand spiritual truths, unbelievers don't. Let's consider what application this has for our children. You've heard me say many times that we must strive not to be simply Christians Sunday morning. We must, from Monday to Saturday, be Christians in our homes. It's not enough to be a Christian family here at church. We must be Christian families throughout the rest of the week, which means we need to be striving to, be, to pray together as families, gather around the Word of God together, talk about the Bible together, and even gather with other believers at other times. And perhaps even uh, I'm considering whether we should be as families worshiping God in song throughout the week. So whether that's something I need to introduce more often in my family. But I could give you a lot of reasons that we should be doing this, and it largely rests on the Father's shoulders. And so men, make sure that you're the ones, you recognize this is your responsibility. God has not called uh, wives to be the spiritual leaders of the homes. One of the benefits, the reason I'm mentioning this, is one of the benefits associated with gathering your family around the Word of God 
is this is one of the only ways you will be able to tell whether your children understand spiritual truths. You can look down the pew right now and you can guess whether your child is paying attention. But without your child commenting or sharing, it's very difficult to ascertain whether they understand spiritual truths. So this is wonderful to be here, and it's wonderful for your children to hear the Word of God. It's wonderful for us to worship corporately like this, but there must be these conversations where we can listen to our children's, if I might say, hearts and hear what's in them, because out of the heart the mouth speaks to determine whether they understand these spiritual truths. Now, here's the balance again. Like I, when I talked about spiritual hunger and thirst, our children are not always going to read the Bible all the time. But when we talk about understanding spiritual truths, it's not to say that our children are going to be the greatest theologians. Most of the men I know who know the Word of God the best are the men who acknowledge the things that they don't know. It it's actually takes an amount of immaturity or lack of knowledge to think that you know that much because it's evidence that you don't know enough to know how little you know. People who do know an amount recognize how little they know and will be quick to say, you know, in all my studying, Pastor Scott, I still, I struggle with this. I only see dimly as 1 Corinthians 13, Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, and this is still a secret to me. It's mature godly people that say that. So with that said, if that's the case for mature Christians who might have committed decades to learning God's word, the bar for our children cannot be super high. We can't expect them to understand the deepest spiritual truths. We cannot expect them to sound like R.C. Sproul or, or John MacArthur. But with that said, they should still be able to understand spiritual truths. And so you might even get frustrated with me in this sermon and say, well, it sounds like you're saying two different things. Well, it's kind of difficult. That's my point. I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to strike the balance here. And our kids do need to be able to communicate spiritual truths if they're believers. And I say that based on the verses we just read, that if people are believers, God has revealed these truths to them. Our children might not be the most articulate. We might have to help them with words, remind them of verses. But we should be able to tell that these truths are in their hearts. Now, here's the difficulty to further complicate this. When our children are raised in the church, they can typically answer what I would call fill-in-the-blank questions. For example, if you ask a child, who built the ark? Who led the nation of Israel out of Egypt? What did Jesus use to feed the 5,000? They're going to be able to answer these questions, and that does not mean that they have spiritual insight. It simply means they have good memories. So to determine whether our children understand spiritual truths or their hearts have been opened to the Word of God requires somewhat penetrating questions to them that allow us to see below the surface or invite them to discuss things that are below the surface. And so have, have these, I guess, somewhat difficult or tough conversations, have these elaborate discussions with our children about these, about these topics, try to have conversations that reveal an understanding of spiritual truth that's below the surface. So in a sense, this is what came to mind for me. I want to be able to say about my children what Jesus was able to say about Peter. Let me say one more time. I want to be able to listen to my children, and I want to be able to say this. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you remember when Jesus said that to Peter? Because of the spiritual recognition Peter had, and Jesus says, you didn't learn this from man. You didn't learn this from a college. You didn't learn this from some book. You didn't even learn this from some other person. God in heaven revealed this to you. And we want those moments as parents, when looking at our children, we can say, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. You did not learn this in your own effort, but God who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Because the Holy Spirit is the divine teacher, and a child indwelt by the Holy Spirit will at least have some grasp, some grasp, again, not expecting a great theologian, but some grasp of these spiritual truths. Now, the next lesson Part five, perseverance through trials. Perseverance through trials. As a parent, I think probably the only thing that is worse than going through very difficult trials ourselves is watching our children go through them. Rare is the parent who wouldn't look at their child suffer and do almost anything to be able to suffer in that child's place right? Especially the younger the child when it's difficult to explain these things. Now, with that said, as difficult as it is 
to have to watch our children suffer, there is one, and I, I did choose my words carefully with this, and I do mean it, wonderful benefit associated with our children going through trials, and it is the opportunity for us to have insight into their faith. There are not many more unique moments in a child's life or more revealing moments of a child's faith than when they are suffering. Because trials, scripturally speaking, primarily do two things. And maybe we don't even like that this is the case, but this is what the Word of God uh, abundantly teaches, that they mature us. And second, they test our faith. James 1.3, trials test our faith. I, that's not my interpretation of the verse. That's exactly what the verse says. Trials test our faith. 1 Peter 1.7, trials prove or they reveal the genuineness of our faith. Now, the important thing to remember in this, it's never a case of whether a person survives a trial. We're not looking for physical survivability. We're looking for spiritual survivability. There are many people who go through trials and do not survive. Martyrs, for example. People with diseases. So the question is never whether the person survives. The question is always whether the person's faith survives. We are looking for the faith itself to survive the trial. Some people physically survive a trial, but not spiritually. Their faith doesn't survive. Job's wife tried to get him to not survive spiritually, right? Curse God and die. And so when our children are suffering or experiencing a trial, we're able to see their faith. One of the most precious things to God, and it, I believe it is the same for us as parents, is to see suffering with faith maintained through it. Because how easy, or maybe, let me say like this, how difficult is it to look good or sound good, spiritually speaking, when we are doing well? Who, who is really getting the promotion, receiving the gift, winning the game, and then saying, oh, I'm just having the most difficult time praising God right now? That doesn't happen, you know? And so the person wins the Super Bowl, and they put the microphone in their face, and this man, and I'm not, I'm thankful he's got this platform, and at that moment, he chooses to give credit to Christ. That's a wonderful thing. But the real question would be, how does he respond when the microphone is put in his face when he learns his child has cancer? Or when he loses the game? Or when he's betrayed? Or something terrible happens? I mean, that's the real question how we respond when we're suffering, because who can't respond well when things are good? Now, just as trials reveal when faith is sincere, trials equally reveal when faith is insincere or not genuine. Matthew 13, 21, the seed on rocky ground doesn't survive when trouble or persecution comes. So the seed, the word of God, the gospel hits a heart and it doesn't penetrate the heart. It doesn't take root when? When trouble or trials or persecution comes. So, without trials, it's just hard to know if faith is genuine. Now, once again, <clears throat> I need to provide some balance to this, and I don't just mean for children. I don't, I'm convinced that God does not want fake piousness from us when we are suffering, one of the beautiful realities of the book of Psalms is you get to see individuals, primarily David, who are pouring out their heart to God when they're suffering terribly. Now, here's the thing. I don't know how many other Psalms David wrote that are not put in the book of Psalms, but David wrote a bunch of Psalms suffering terribly, crying out to God about how difficult it was, asking questions, expressing doubt and confusion about what he's experiencing, and that's not, that's not the beautiful reality. The beautiful reality is God took those psalms and he included them in the Bible for us to see, to be encouraged by that example. So when you're suffering terribly, it is a good thing for you to pour out your heart to God and be transparent and go to him with it, with your questions, with your doubts, with your confusion. That's what true believers do. Fake, pious, religious zealots don't do that because they don't have a relationship with God, so they do not go to Him. So what's my point? My point is when our children suffer, it does not mean that they're not Christians because they have doubts or questions or are confused, especially at a very young age, 
Because when you're young, you don't expect these sorts of difficult things to happen. You think that there are things that happen to people who are much older. And so kids are going to experience confusion, but, the, but we're looking to see how they handle that confusion, how they handle that doubt. Do they, do they deny God or do they ask questions like, I believe in God, I don't understand why I'm going through this, and then to pray with our children about those things. And so there's nothing wrong with suffering and then, and then being burdened about it and pouring out our hearts to God. We should do that. Go ahead and turn to 1 John for our next evidence. And while you do that, it's the third to last. So you've got Revelation, then you've got Jude, and right before Jude is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So t- after Paul's epistles. So let me conclude this previous evidence by saying this. It's difficult for parents. I mean, children, you might not believe this, but th- and th- you will believe it if you're graced with children later. It actually is harder on us to watch you go through difficult things than it is for you to go through them. It is the truth. We would do anything to be able to go through it in your place. But one of the wonderful things for us as parents is when you go through trials, when children go through trials, it is one of the clearest windows into whether that child's faith is sincere or sincere. And when our children suffer and it appears that their faith survives, then we can rejoice as parents that their faith has been what? Tested and revealed to be or proved to be genuine. Now the next evidence, part six, not habitually disobedient. Part six, not habitually disobedient. Go ahead and look at 1 John 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. So we can't walk in darkness, which I would say is synonymous with being habitually disobedient and to be a Christian. We can't be habitually disobedient or we can't walk in darkness and be a Christian. But now look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And he's not just talking about unbelievers, he's talking about believers. So again, we see this balance. And the Bible even strikes this balance for us. We're never going to reach a point of perfect sinlessness and to think otherwise is to do what? John says. To lie to ourselves but at the same time, we can't walk in darkness or we can't have lives that are characterized by habitual disobedience. Let me show you some other verses that make this point. Look in chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him, and this is an important phrase here, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The phrase keeps on sinning is key. It's used twice in this verse. So he didn't say this. He said, no one who sins has seen him. He says no one who, or no one who sins is a believer. He says no one who keeps on sinning, or which is to say someone who has a life that is characterized by sin, or is to say someone, I would say, who engages in sin, but seems to lack conviction or desire to repent or have victory over it. Have you ever spoken to someone about sin and they've defended it, been comfortable throwing themselves into it? Christians don't do that. Christians are in the end of Romans 7, which Jake preached on, where they're struggling and they're, and they're saying, I'm doing what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. I hate what I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's what Christians say when they're sinning. Unbelievers say, I don't feel bad about this. Don't tell me I can't live with my boyfriend. Don't tell me I can't get drunk. Don't tell me I can't watch this. Don't tell me I can't look at this because I can. I do it and I don't feel bad. That's what unbelievers say. Those are unsaved people. Look at verse 8. He says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And here it is again. No one born of God or no Christian makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And we see these phrases that are all synonymous with habitual disobedience. Keeps on sinning, makes a practice of sinning. Those are all ways of John saying simply that a believer cannot be habitually disobedient or live in sin that characterizes that person's life. It's not to say that we don't sin at all, because if we said we don't sin, 
then we are deceiving ourselves. And so again, this is difficult, isn't it? You can look at this and you can even be frustrated with me. And you could say, well, Pastor Scott, on one hand, you're saying we can't keep on sinning. And on the other hand, you're saying we're lying if we say we don't sin. So at what point have I moved from sinning to keep on sinning? (laughs) At what point have I sinned and now I'm practicing sinning? And I can't tell you, I wish I could. The Bible doesn't tell me. But I will say this. If you've been listening to me say this, child or adult, and you're saying, I'm concerned that I'm practicing sin. I have been giving myself over to this. You really need to respond to that conviction because that is not a small thing to be listening to the Word of God, having the Word of God come forth and wash over you, and then for the Holy Spirit to privately speak to your heart and for you to disregard that. So if you've been listening to this and you're thinking, you know, I do sin, I hate it, Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am, I desire victory, that's one thing. But if you're listening and you're saying, I think I am not a believer, I am practicing sin, this is describing me, I am in these verses, I've been doing this for so many months or so many years, and I have have not been that convicted about it, and now God's allowed me to be in church today and hear this, that would be a terrible thing to ignore that conviction. Again, child or adult alike. Now look at the next part of lesson one. Evidence of salvation to look for in your children, part seven, obedience. And this is not the same as the previous evidence. And I say that because the Bible doesn't present them identically. Obedience is part seven. Look for this evidence in your child. So we talked about putting off and putting on. Well, if you put off or you repent of habitual disobedience, you're going to put on obedience. Look at 1 John 2 verse 3. 1 John 2, verse 3. By this, we know that we have come to know him. So if you pause right there, how wonderful is this? John is about to tell us how we can know if we're Christians. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to let you know, or this is how we know if we are Christians, or we know if we've come to know the Lord, if we keep his commandments. So keeping his commandments or obeying is evidence we know him. We're not saved by obedience or by obeying God's commands or by works, but it is one of the evidences of being saved. Look at verse 5. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And then by this we know that we are in him, again, by keeping his word. He says you keep his word and that's how you know that you are in him. Look in chapter 3, verse 7. Little children... 1 John 3, verse 7, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now, for me personally, I'll just share this with you. You don't necessarily have to do this, but I might encourage it. All of the Bible is truth, which is to say all of the Bible combats error, which is to say all of the Bible is meant to protect us from deception, right? But whenever you're reading And Paul, or John in this case, happens to say, do not be deceived. I tend to think that's God's way of saying, don't miss this, pay special attention. This is a particularly strong area of deception. And in this case, he doesn't want us deceived. He wants us to know that if we practice righteousness, then we are righteous. That that's one of the evidences of being a righteous by faith. We are justified or declared righteous by faith, and once we are declared righteous by faith, then that righteousness begins to flow out of our lives. And so he says, don't be deceived. A righteous person is going to practice righteousness. Now, I want to discuss a very strong temptation that, and so here's, so the balance, our children are, our children are never going to be absolutely free of disobedience or sin. Our children will still disobey, but it's concerning if they're habitually disobedient. Similar, they're never going to reach a sinless perfection. At the same time, our children will never always be obedient. There will still be times that they are not doing what we want, but we must expect to see some obedience from them if if they're Christians. And I've, I've heard this from parents. I've heard parents talk about having a rebellious child, they sus- and then and they suspected the child was not a Christian, and then they saw a conversion or witnessed conversion through that child's change in behavior. P- 
Parents who can look back and say, yeah, I, I don't think the child was a Christian, but then they gave their lives to Christ, and we were able to witness that change. There was obedience produced or evident that was not there before. And so again, that balance. No, our children won't be obedient all the time, but they should be obedient an amount of the time if they are Christians. Few commands. I mean, if you're a child, you have no idea how easy your life is as a child right now. You have little more to do than obey your parents. That is the primary command for you as a child. This is the easiest your life will ever be. If you cannot do that, it's only going to get harder. Your parents, God is going to work through your parents to direct your life until you become an adult. God is going, the responsibility is on our shoulders. We're the ones with the difficult job. We're the ones who are responsible with trying to raise you to know the Lord and point you in the right right direction. It doesn't even rest on your shoulders as a child. All you need to do to be in God's grace is remain under the authority of your parents' umbrella the best you can and expect God to work through that in your favor. So if you're a child, that is the primary command for you. Now, I want to talk about one of the temptations, very strong temptations that we face as parents when we don't see some of the evidences in our lives. And let let me pause. I want to say one other thing to children here. I want to be real clear about this. I have seen children who have cast off their parents' authority, and this is not an exaggeration, I have never seen it go well. I have, never, I have no examples in my life, maybe you do, but I have no examples in my life of a child that said, I'm going to step out from underneath the authority of my parents, I am not going to do what they say, I'm going to do what I think is right, and then be blessed. I have never seen that happen even one single time. It might have taken a few years to see the consequences, but they come. God does not bless children's disobedience to their parents. You should fear that if you're a child. Now, one of the temptations that we face as parents, or I face and sadly succumb to more often than not, I would like to discuss with you. There's a very strong temptation we face as parents when we don't see the evidences in our children that we would like to see. Let's walk through the evidences, and I'll help you see the temptation we face. Let's say you have a child that does something wrong, and you don't see godly sorrow. Look back at the first evidence. You don't see godly sorrow, you see worldly sorrow. They're concerned about their punishment or you spanking them, and they don't seem to have any concern about what they've done wrong. And you're discouraged by this. You're disappointed as a parent. So this is your temptation, or this is my temptation. To get our children to have godly sorrow, we tell them how bad they are. We tell them how bad it is, what they've done, their actions, And we think that this is going to make them feel bad enough to experience godly sorrow. But it doesn't. We're we're condemning them. We're even berating them. We're telling them how bad they are as children, how terrible their actions are. We can't believe they're acting that way. Let's say the next evidence. We're not seeing the spiritual fruit in our children's lives that we would like to see. They're not serving the Lord. You know, you're coming to the church to clean and you're, and, or whatever it is. Anytime there's service, your kids don't want to do it. You're not seeing any spiritual fruit in their lives. And so you say things like this. You're tempted to say, what is wrong with you? Why don't you want to do anything for God? We raised you to be a Christian. You know better than this. This isn't right. But then what doesn't happen? spiritual fruit being produced. We don't see it. We say these things to try to get spiritual fruit to be produced, and there's no change. Our children don't seem to have a spiritual hunger and thirst. They don't want to read the Bible. They don't want to pray. They don't want to go to church. They don't want to worship. And we say things like, you know, you should be reading your Bible more. And by the way, you do, we should say that. I say that. <laughs> we should tell our children if they're not reading the Bible, we should talk to them about that and say, hey, have you been reading the Bible? What have you been reading? Probably need to read the Bible more. But if we say it like this, what is wrong with you? You're never reading your Bible. Why don't you want to go to church? Don't you know this is what God wants you to do? This is what Christians do. Don't you want to be a Christian? Because we don't see spiritual hunger and thirst. We think that's going to produce it, but what? It doesn't. You, You don't get your child to want to pray more. You don't get your child to want to read the Bible more by criticizing them and condemning them and berating them for not praying and not reading the Bible. During prayer time, I would discourage you from criticizing your children if they don't pray. Because then if you do that, then prayer is going to become a punishment. Or they're going to view it that way. They're going to view it as something they have to do when they're being bad. And we don't want our children. The better approach is for our children to hear us pray, see their siblings pray, and then we pray that God stirs them up to want to pray. 
our children don't seem to understand spiritual truths and so we say something like you need are you just not paying attention i mean i've been taking you to church for years we have family bible studies why don't you understand this stuff you should know this by now how can you not know this when we talk about this because we think that's going to help our children understand spiritual truths by condemning them like that and just to let you know there are very good times to tell our children that they should strive to understand there are very we do that is part of the discipling and training and pointing and saying you know no it's you've you're too old now you need to be taking notes during the sermon let's shift away at this point from the drawing and coloring to to writing down things that you're you're understanding from the sermon so we want to see these evidences and we're trying to get them the wrong way our children are not obedient instead our children are habitually disobedient now we do need to talk to our children about their sin we do need to talk to them about their disobedience but if we're just condemning them and criticizing them over and over again for the way that they're acting we're not going to see the results we want internally we might be able to get the results we want outwardly we might be able to get the outward reform so because our children don't want to have to listen to us anymore and they don't want to be punished anymore but there hasn't been a change in heart there hasn't been a change the way we want and this brings us to lesson two focus on the gospel when evidences are lacking focus on the gospel or focus on christ or preach christ when the evidences are lacking i want to ask you to do something and i do i do want you to do it if you're a parent and you have ever wanted to change your child's heart raise your hand every parent shall their hand up you've all wanted to change your parents your children's hearts at times okay now if you're a parent and you have ever successfully changed your child's heart put your hand up you can't do it can we i mean we want to so frequently to change our children's hearts and we can't do it and why am i telling you this because only the gospel can only christ can we can work outwardly we can produce moral reform we can produce outward reform we can get them to do the right things but it doesn't mean that anything has changed inwardly that's only something that the gospel of jesus christ can do so if the evidences are lacking you're listening to this you're not seeing the godly sorrow you're not seeing the spiritual fruit you're not seeing the hunger and thirst you're not seeing the understanding of spiritual truths you don't see the perseverance through trials you don't see obedience probably the only thing you do see is habitual disobedience then what your children really need is the gospel so talk to your children about their sin rebuke them discipline them but even more talk to them about christ so talk to them about spiritual fruit talk to them about spiritual truths talk to them about obedience and disobedience but even more preach the gospel to them i think i told you i have been surprised by the number of family bible studies that i had planned and i don't put a lot into it and i and i i'm just dressed the wise briefly there was some some weight thrown on your husband's shoulders a little bit ago when i said that they're responsible with family worship i do this full time and i don't have the time to put thorough bible studies together for my families so ladies if your husband is opening the word with you be thank and your family be thankful for that and if he can't answer every question be gracious to him do not expect a sermon every time your family gathers around the word of god because most men are not in the position to be able to do that now with that said for our family bible studies i have kind of had a thought you know i want to talk about this i want to talk about that and i cannot tell you how many times it has been diverted to deal with the gospel and every time that that's that god leads that way we should respond by preaching the gospel to our children even more i never imagined that, that i would be talking about it as much as i am and i'm and i'm thankful that god reveals those instances when that has when my whatever i had planned has to be shelved and that has to become the topic of that of that um, bible study and so my point is that's what i'm seeing is the strong need and it's not always i'm i'm kind of interested at times i want to talk about this king or this judge or want to look at this epistle and instead it's like god says no it's we're, we need to preach the gospel to the kids some more they need to hear the gospel some more and so that is what our children really need it's only the gospel that's going to capture their hearts that's going to be able to produce these evidences because think about this 
Let's say you have a, a child that has a particularly obnoxious sin or struggle. It affects the whole family, and you would give your right arm to see this child stop. And let's say you focus on it, and so here's the problem. Because that sin or that struggle is so obnoxious to you and such a thorn in your family's side, what do you want to talk about when you address the child? That sin or that struggle? Let's say you get that child to stop that sin or struggle or overcome it, but the child hasn't become a Christian, and nothing has changed inwardly. You've only dealt with the outward than what? You now have a more obedient child who's a little more of a blessing to your family who is still going to hell, who still doesn't know Christ. That is not a success, is it? That's not victory. So what we want is we want to deal with the inside out, and it's only the gospel that can do that. In other words, the major focus should not be the sin. It is the child coming to Christ. So again, preach the gospel to them. Focus on the heart when we don't see these evidences. Remind them of what Christ has done for them. And then hopefully, as they're regenerated or brought to life spiritually, their love for Christ will produce these evidences in their lives. Father, we thank you for the children that you have blessed us with. They're some of our greatest treasures on this side of heaven and some of the greatest treasures for our church personally. They're the next generation. With baptisms approaching in a few weeks, Lord, make clear to us as parents which of our children should be saved. And I pray that you would convict the children if they are saved, that they would desire to be baptized. But should they not be saved, then do not give them any peace about it, Lord. I pray that for any children that are not saved, that they would be convicted to repent and put their faith in Christ, but would recognize that this is not the time in their lives. It's not never, but it's at least not yet for them. And I pray as we talked about these evidences for any adults or anyone else, Lord, that heard them and is concerned about their salvation, that they would respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction, tugging on their hearts and pointing out to them the lack of evidence of salvation so that change can be made in their hearts before they draw their last breath. We thank you for that wonderful revelation when someone on this side of heaven can recognize they're unsaved, when there is time still to repent and put faith in Christ. And for those who are saved, Lord, we thank you for the blessing of seeing evidences that make us more confident in our salvation. We want people to know where they're at spiritually in this church. We would never want to think about anyone being deceived, entering eternity, hearing those terrible words, you know, depart from me, I never knew you. What, what could be, uh, it's just unspeakable, Lord, that, that possibility. And we, I pray as the pastor of this church that, that none of these people would have to hear that in the future, Lord. But we recognize that that requires repentance and faith in Christ. It must be wrought about by your Spirit, Lord. And, and so convict people and give them the grace to respond to that conviction. We thank you for this time, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.